Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. I came back out to my family and was told not to walk back in to my house ever again. This conversion therapy didn't just destroy my identity, it destroyed my relationship with my family because they thought that after spending these tens of thousands of dollars, they would have a heterosexual child. And they didn't get that. And they feel like they failed, and I failed, and the system failed. And there's nothing I can do to help them understand. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. On this edition of Outcasting, we conclude our four-part series about conversion therapy, the practice of trying to change someone's sexuality from gay or bisexual to straight. Homosexuality used to be defined as a mental disorder, and many psychiatrists used to practice conversion therapy. The practice is now widely discredited within the medical and mental health professions, but it still exists throughout the country, now usually associated with religious institutions rather than medical institutions. What actually happens during conversion therapy, and what effects do these practices have on young people? In the first two parts of this series, Outcaster Andrew spoke with Jack Drescher, a gay psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. Dr. Drescher has been working with LGBTQ patients for over 30 years, and writing about conversion therapy for over 20 years. Part 2 included Outcaster Lucas's commentary on his near brush with conversion therapy. If you missed it on the air, you can listen to this program on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Dr. Drescher's interview gives an expert and technical perspective on conversion therapy. In part three, we feature the first half of an interview with Sam Brinton, who was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and survived to tell about it. Sam, who uses they them pronouns, is the head of advocacy and government affairs at the Trevor Project a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Sam founded and leads the 50 Bills, 50 States campaign, which aims to bring legislation that bans conversion therapy to all 50 states. They talked with Alcaster Andrew. This is the last part of that interview. Afterward, we'll talk about the assumptions about LGBTQ identity that fuel the perceived need to turn gay people straight. Sam Brinton, welcome back to Outcasting. It's great to be here. How old were you when the conversion therapy started and then when you left, um, when you uh, fell out of contact with your parents? I started conversion therapy at 11. I ended conversion therapy around 13. I would then go through middle school and high school with my family as a straight person. Then I would start college. About halfway through college was when I would come back out the second time. Uh, and I basically would lose contact with my family at that point. So to the to the degree that you have recovered, how did you do that? How did that happen? A lot of it is introspection, faith, and a community surrounding me telling me that I am loved just as I am and that what was done to me was wrong and that I I am able to move forward. I think I don't need a community to tell me that I deserve to exist. I know I deserve to exist. I need a community to tell me that even after bad times, 
I will be able to, um, I'll be able to still make a good difference. That's the thing. I think staying as a survivor is the hard part. That's always the hard part about these interviews, right? Is that people want to know about my survival, but not about my thriving, I guess. like So they want to hear about my surviving, but they don't want to hear about my thriving, right? I'm a nuclear physicist who graduated from MIT, right? But that's not what anyone cares about. They care about the trauma and the pain. And I think the re- the way I've gotten over it is because a community around me tells me, yes, Sam existed in a really bad time. And they use their voice and that pain to make sure that no child ever has to go through it again. But at the same time, they are more than that experience, right? They are I guess I'm referring to myself in the third person now, but like, like, like this is, this is the world that I think will help me continuously get better. So how did this experience in the longer term affect your relationship with your parents? Um, well, not great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I came back out to my family and was told not to walk back in to my house ever again. So I write a postcard to my family every two weeks telling them what's going on in my life so that if they're ever ready, I will be ready to welcome them back into my life. I've never gotten a response back, and that's okay. My mother did come to my graduation from MIT, and at this moment, she has said she's going to come to my wedding, and I truly, truly hope she does. Um, If she doesn't, that will be okay. Because I'm still getting married <laughs> and I will still have an amazing time. But family's complex. This conversion therapy didn't just destroy my identity. It destroyed my relationship with my family because they thought that after spending these tens of thousands of dollars, they would have a heterosexual child. And they didn't get that. And they feel like they failed and I failed and the system failed. And there's nothing I can do to help them understand that they created a beautiful child. I still exist as a beautiful child and the system is what's broken, making it even a, a possibility. That's incredible. So how many how many years has it been that you've been sending them or the men writing those postcards? Oh my gosh. No one's ever asked me that question before. Um, 12 years. Wow. That's a lot of postcards <laughs> now that I think about it. Jesus. <laughs> that is a lot. But it's always cute. Like... <laughs> Hey, mom, I was on the radio. Uh, Like, hey, mom and dad, like, I just saw this really great movie. You know, it's, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, but it's letting them know that I'm, I'm in the middle of planning a wedding, right? Like, that's the stress that's going on in my life. Um, It's just finding ways to help them understand that their child is still the child that they, you know, raised. I just happened to love a little bit differently than they expected. Wow. So it's almost like like a mini diary, I guess. That's a really yes. <laughs> if my mother is if, if if my mother has saved any of these, uh, that's exactly what it will be, but I highly doubt that that has happened. <laughs> that would be a great book though. Oh my god, that would be like a brilliant book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that means you're still you're still not letting go on that. I will never let go. I learned long ago that many of my friends, I'm going to be sad for a second. So many of my survivor friends, friends who are survivors of conversion therapy, 
um, of the roughly 60 that I met when I came back out the second time, uh, about 50 of them have died by suicide. So it's just my entire friend group, right, is just being decimated by this because, again, we were so traumatized as children. And I saw that so many of them had so much pain when it came to their families, so much pain. And I decided that I wasn't going to have that pain anymore. I had to forgive them to get past that moment that it doesn't matter if they've forgiven me. I'm done. I did my part. It's not my cross to bear, to use a religious term. And that's really healthy for me. It's not for everybody. And I understand that. I think a lot of LGBT youth will talk to me being like, well, you don't understand. It's I could never forgive my parents. And I, I'm never telling a person that they have to. I'm just saying that for me, it was the best decision I ever made was to just move past the pain and say that my family was lied to. My family did wrong, but they were lied to. And in the end, I have to just accept that if I get an apology from them someday, that will be wonderful. But if I never do, I never need it. And so you don't know at this point what your parents' beliefs are about sexuality and gender? I don't, no. I don't have any idea. I don't. I don't even remember how old my parents are, to be very wow. super honest. I have, like, it's it's been so long since I've celebrated anything with them. I have no idea how old my family is. Or, like, when... I, I can't remember my father and my mother's birthday. I had never said that till just now. I cannot remember what their birthdays are because it's been so long. Did your conversion therapy experience change your personal relationship with religion or religious institutions? It did not. Well, hmm, that's a complex question. Okay, so conversion therapy itself did not change my overarching views of religion. It did change my faith. So my religion was based on what my parents had been telling me. And my current faith is based on my own interpretation of the Bible, my own interpretation of um, faith, and my own direct relationship with God. So although conversion therapy clearly caused a lot of trauma and it was based in the idea that God didn't love me, I don't believe that. I believe that God does love me. And so because of that, I've gotten to a place where I don't, I don't question that. And that's interesting that you're you're still religious because I think I think sort of like the stereotype or the more common story is that people who experience religiously associated homophobia end up sort of rejecting that religion. So that's interesting. It is. And both survivors and um, our allies and supporters tend to now, more than not, the ones that I, I tend to hang out with more are people of faith. Because we're people who recognize that faith can be corrupted, but it can do so much good. That's the problem is that I think you're right. The stereotype is that when faith harms, we leave it. But faith doesn't harm. Religion harms. Humans use faith to harm others. But it doesn't. that justification doesn't mean that the faith itself is bad. I guess that's at least how I view it. So why do you think that religious groups are so often sources of LGBTQ oppression? I think that they have been told by their pastors, their leadership, 
that this is how things have always been and therefore this is how things always must be. It's not true. Every Bible verse that they try to use against me is always easily refuted. But we live in a culture where it's very hard to ever admit that we're wrong. And so faith communities would have to say that all this years and years of oppression that they've been causing were for naught. And that's not going to happen. I think there are faith communities that are stepping forward and saying, we apologize, we, we did wrong. But the majority of them are, are worried that the backlash for, I mean, think of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of families that have been torn apart by the idea that who somebody loved was worthy of excommunication, of homelessness, of conversion therapy. That's a lot of atonement. There have been 700,000 Americans who've experienced conversion therapy. 700,000. A lot of them will be in some way, shape, or form directly because of faith. That is a staggering amount of pain that a faith community has caused. But it is, again, because that faith community was told that that was the only option. So my job is to say, I'm also a person of faith, and this is not what my God wants us to do. Do you think that religion leads people to homophobia or that it's only a secondary excuse or justification for existing homophobia? Homophobia exists without faith. People absolutely can hate other people for a variety of reasons. And we will find some reason to not like somebody. But faith has given many an excuse for why it's it's bad. But let's be very honest. A child who is transgender, explaining that to your family is not about your faith. It's about your parent understanding that what they imagined you will be is not reality. That is confusion. It's fear, not hatred. And it's not necessarily homophobia when it's religious. They don't fear the homosexual. They want to save the homosexual. I think that those are different different worlds. Is conversion therapy always associated with religion? No. Many times it is, but not always. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew was talking with Sam Brinton, who was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and lived to tell about it. Sam uses they-them pronouns and is now an activist working to ban conversion therapy nationwide. So at the time that you were in conversion therapy, about how common or widespread was it? Uh, we will never know for sure how widespread conversion therapy has ever been or is. What we do know in terms of estimates, as I said, is that about 700,000 people have gone through conversion therapy and 350,000 of them were adolescents when they were put through conversion therapy. We know that the largest times of it were in the 90s. The fascinating part for me is that conversion therapy will never actually be ended. What I'm trying to work to do is to remove licensed therapists from being able to practice it on minors. And that is one specific subset of this horrific disease, but it's it's the thing that I can actually manage. I do know that we have saved thousands of LGBTQ youth from conversion therapy um, just in the past few years. Do we know how prevalent it is now? We know that there are up to 20,000 LGBTQ youth aged 13 to 17 who will receive conversion therapy 
from a licensed medical professional in the next three to four years. We also know that there are 57,000 LGBTQ youth who will receive conversion therapy from a religious provider in the next three to four years. So that's over 60, 70,000 LGBTQ youth currently going through conversion therapy. And if we assume the same rates, remember it was about half of them were adolescents when it had happened, that there's another 60 to 70,000 adults going through conversion therapy as well. So you said it was at its sort of peak in the 90s and then it started to go down a little bit. What do you think led to that trend? I think it became easier to be gay in public. When your identity is up for debate and you can be kicked out of your home and kicked out of your job and never have a chance at marriage, never have a chance at love, conversion therapy sounds really appealing. But as it got has gotten better and better for LGBTQ people to exist as we are, I think the allure of conversion therapy dissipated. So does this also go along with the decrease in the idea that being LGBTQ is something wrong or changeable? I would hope that that is um, the reality. I know that most people don't think conversion therapy is still even happening. And so once I tell them that it's still happening, most of them will be like, oh my goodness, we have to stop this right away. So I would say that we are definitely moving into an era where conversion therapy will be considered ridiculous and barbaric. And that's good because that means that the idea of choice of sexuality is also going by the wayside. And that will be a really good day. So a surprisingly small number of U.S. states have banned conversion therapy. So why do you think so few states have addressed it? Many states don't know that it's still happening. Many states have a lot of other priorities, like non-discrimination. Many states are worried that this is going to be a way to attack faith or religious providers. All of these are wrong. We know that it's happening. We know that it's not that these kinds of pieces of legislation do not uh, limit faith providers, only licensed medical professionals. And we know that marriage equality was a really important thing for our community, really important. But does it really matter if you can get married if you can never make it to the aisle? because you've been erased out of existence. So do you think that it's possible for conversion therapy to be completely eradicated? Conversion therapy will always exist as long as there are people who believe that being straight is better or less dangerous, less wrong than being gay. Let's be honest, there's always racism. We want to get rid of it, but there will always be this idea by some that they are better because inherently because of their race. And for some, they will always believe that they are inherently better because of their sexual orientation. So for legal bans on conversion therapy, do they include all conversion therapy or just by licensed medical professionals? Just by licensed medical professionals. And what do you think that hypothetical eradication or just decrease in the prevalence of conversion therapy means for the LGBTQ community? When you don't think that this is a choice that can be changed, you have to give us the rights and responsibilities that we deserve. It's that simple. People are using conversion therapy as a crutch. The idea of choice is what holds the LGBTQ community back. Why should I give anyone a special privilege, a special right for something that they chose? People don't choose their race. People don't choose their sexuality. It's just that simple. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for sharing your story, Sam. Thanks for having me. This has been the last part of our interview with Sam Brinton. Sam was subjected to conversion therapy as a child and lived to tell about it. 
Sam, who uses they-them pronouns, is the head of advocacy and government affairs at The Trevor Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Sam founded and leads the 50 Bills, 50 States campaign, which aims to bring legislation that bans conversion therapy to all 50 states. Now, we'll talk about the assumptions about LGBTQ identity that fuel the perceived need to turn gay people straight. Hi, I'm Lucas. So, let's say you're a straight man. As a young boy, you probably had little awareness of your straightness. It was just there. You more or less fit in with your friends and classmates, certainly not in all ways, but you probably weren't feeling that a very core part of you might be totally unacceptable to them or might cause them to completely reject you. Then, you got to a certain age and suddenly girls started noticing you. Maybe you still thought they had cooties, but then one night you dream about a girl. Maybe you start having lots of dreams about girls. And so you talk about this dream with your friends and they say in essence, Welcome to the club. They've been having this same kind of dream. You feel grown up. Included. In your school, boys and girls are starting to hang out together. Date. You have your first kiss and feel yourself falling in love. So, is this the story of your particular life? Probably not. But it's pretty typical and chances are that there are parts of it you went through. So let's look at what happened. You experienced those early dreams. Your feelings happened to you naturally. You knew whom you wanted to spend time with, get romantically involved with. And when you talked about these feelings and dreams, your friends affirmed that they were having the same experiences. It was wonderful and fun and sexy and romantic and above all, it's good and it was perfectly natural. Now, notice what we didn't say. That you chose those dreams and feelings. You didn't sit down one day and say, is it right that I'm feeling this way about girls? Or should I be feeling this for other guys? You didn't weigh the advantages and disadvantages of having feelings for guys or for girls. You didn't choose to be straight, you just are. Yet, reparative or conversion therapies still exist. So let's talk about the assumptions people make about what it means to be LGBTQ when they try to get their children to turn from gay to straight. Conversion therapy is built on a lie, and there are several assumptions about what it means to be gay that people use to justify the lie. Perhaps the most basic false assumption is that being gay is a choice, and that children can be taught to make other choices, specifically that they can choose to be straight. But straight people don't choose to be straight, so why would anyone think that gay people choose to be gay? You know whom you're attracted to romantically. It's a deep down part of you. Why would anyone think it's any different for us? Some people think that being gay is immoral but morality comes into play only when someone is choosing something, and if it's not a choice, then it can't be immoral. Another assumption is that being gay is a behavior, not part of one's core identity. That turning from gay to straight is or should be as easy as giving up a bad habit. But we know deep down whom we're attracted to, and that doesn't change. You know whom you want to be in a relationship with, whose hand you want to hold, whom you see yourself spending the rest of your life with. Sexual and romantic orientation is such a core part of who we are that to call it a behavior trivializes the essence right out of it. The idea that the basic attraction of LGBTQ individuals can be changed is just as ridiculous as forcing heterosexuals into same-sex relationships and expecting them to be fulfilled. Then, there's religion. 
it's clear that we no longer put to death children who disobey their parents, or non-virgin brides, or those who cheat on their spouses. We don't condemn football players as abominations for touching the skin of a pig, nor people who wear mixed fabrics. So it seems that people who condemn homosexuality based on biblical teachings are cherry-picking what they think should be enforced in modern times and ignoring the rest. This arbitrariness reveals animosity to gay people much more than a desire to follow religious teachings. Outside of a religious context, there are parents who believe that being gay means living a marginalized, unhappy life, and if their children were to be straight, they would be happier. But in reality, being gay isn't a problem in itself. If gay people aren't happy, it's often because we're subject to so much discrimination. Even today, there are people and groups who are very vocal in their opposition to our right to exist and to live our lives in the ways that are right for us. Homosexuality isn't the problem. Homophobia is. Well-meaning parents want their children to have safe, happy lives, so it's understandable that they would want to spare their children from this discrimination. But the alternative that conversion therapy offers isn't the idealized, happy, straight life. Conversion therapy, as we heard from Sam, doesn't take the gay away. It leads to an unhappy and conflicted life where one's deepest feelings and desires for romantic connection are suppressed. If you say you want your children to be happy, why would you ever impose that emptiness on them? A parent's desire for their child's happiness is even more complicated than wanting them to be straight. Parents are often not just upset that their child is gay, they're also upset about not having biological grandchildren, or a father not being able to walk his daughter down the aisle towards a doting groom. Some parents may feel that they somehow failed in bringing up their child. However, as a parent, you can raise your child to be moral, honest, and ethical regardless of whether they're straight or gay, but it's harmful to expect your child to live against their nature. Conversion therapy teaches children to never accept their queerness, and that keeps them from ever being truly happy. Before I came out, I constantly edited my actions to not seem gay. I would lower my voice when talking to my parents, or lie about who I was hanging out with. Many gay people, myself included, learn to distrust their most basic feelings, and that can make us feel cut off from the world. But once I came out and began to accept who I am, I was finally able to find happiness. Sometimes gay people wonder, if I could take a pill to make me straight, would I do it? It would have made life much easier just to be like everyone else. We wouldn't have had to think introspectively about this part of us that seemed natural to everyone else. We wouldn't have had to go through coming out, figuring out whom we could safely tell, whom we couldn't, whether our families would accept or reject us, and what the consequences of rejection could be. But after coming out, the story changed. It turns out that all that introspection was actually good for us. It made us more empathetic, more understanding of people whose experiences might be outside the mainstream. At early ages, it made us think about gender norms and whether it was fair to project them on people. It let us think about a more equitable world where people's choices in life weren't limited by whether they were male or female or straight or gay or bi or trans. Taking that pill to make us straight would change who we are. We wouldn't be us. And that's why we'd never wish conversion therapy on anyone. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrew, Dante, Lauren, Lucas1, Lucas2, 
Max, Nico, Quinn, Druve, Sarah, and Justin. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home, school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.